You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from which this podcast is recorded, the Buruburongal clan of the Darung Nation and the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. My guest today is Dr. Roy Mariathis. Roy graduated from the University of Western Sydney after working at Nepean Hospital. He became a RACGP Fellow in 2019 and followed with a brief stint as a medical educator. 18 months ago, he was accepted into the Australian Clinical Entrepreneur Program, moving into digital health. He now sits on the RACGP Expert Committee for Practice Technology and Management, and he provides ad hoc advice to the New South Wales Health Centre for Population Health. And he's founded a digital health company that is exploring how generative AI can be used in the care delivery for both GPs and patients. He lives in the Hawkesbury with his wife and two, soon to be three kids. Welcome, Roy. Thanks so much. It's a real privilege to be here. I never would have dreamed of being in this position, so it's really humbling to be speaking to you today. Thanks. Cool. So, Roy, I'm old enough to remember the pre-internet world, and I remember the hype with the information superhighway, as it was called before it got going. Why is the world going nuts over artificial intelligence now? Yeah, that's such a good question. I still remember those days too, Steve. Like I never really fully appreciated it until now, but I had a dad who was bullish on technology. So I played Prince of Persia as a five-year-old and had all remember all the nostalgia of dial-up internet, all the noises that came with it and having to disconnect to, to make phone calls, all of that delight. I think artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. And we've used this maybe with or without our own knowledge in technologies like computer vision, training technology to map moles on skin, machine learning for analytics. I think where this step change in technology really lies is in natural language processing. So we're talking about things like chatbots. Think Telstra or your autocomplete on your text messages or talking to Siri or Alexa. It's in this field that we had a real step change. Before, we were only able to see the data that was coming in or the requests coming in almost like one word at a time. And there was like limited memory for these technologies. In 2017, Google researchers discovered a way to process a lot of information all at once, essentially. And this type of technology is called transformers. If you're interested, there's a research paper called Attention is All You Need for some deep reading. Basically, we could look at all of the words in a sentence all at once, as in a question or a statement, and in context with all of the data behind it. So think of this like a really smart librarian. When we go to the library, a librarian might have a bank of books that they really like to read. And so they know them by the back of their hand. Now, the librarians that we're talking about in generative AI, they've literally memorized every single book in that library. And when you ask them a question, they can take that question in context, look at all of the books in the library, and then give you an answer in context. So... Now, I think this is the reason why we're getting such like powerful answers back from from technologies like ChatGPT. This technology started off about four years ago. In that four years, there's been step changes in time. In November of 
2022, a website called ChatGPT was opened up to the world. And, and that's really what took the world by storm. It demonstrated this technology to everybody and anybody that could access this. Um, why it's really relevant is Netflix went to 1 million users in the course of three and a half years, Airbnb, two and a half years, Facebook took 10 months, Spotify, five months, ChatGPT went to 1 million users in five days. So the uptake and the popularity of this type of technology is absolutely massive. It's the fastest adopted technology to date. And from what I've seen in startups, enterprise companies, other industries, every company, every industry is getting massively disrupted. When you see the power of this technology, it causes people to think about whether their jobs are going to get taken and almost these existential questions. What does it mean to be human? <laughs> is AI going to take over the world because the, the technology is so powerful? Like, is this going to be smarter than me? And so I'm seeing all of these like stages of grief almost as, and these ups and down emotions that we would observe in, in somebody that was grieving. People are getting very excited and then depressed and then asking big questions and then, you know, kind of landing and, and trying to work out what a new normal is. Um, it almost feels like another COVID, but with technology, like every single mm. week or every single month, there's just a, a big step change in technology and we're, we're having to readjust. Certainly that's what it feels like in the technology world. And I imagine for us as general practitioners, it will take some time for it to come to healthcare in its fullest, but we'll definitely see a lot of use of generative AI technologies in many other industries and it will change the way we live. So yeah, it's quite an exciting time. It's a time, I think, to take up and take notice. I'd encourage our profession not to dig our heads in the sand, but it is that the fourth industrial revolution, you could say. Mm. And so we had the internet and that was a big step change. And now we've got generative AI. There's a couple of helpful analogies that I think can help us think about the size of this impact. The first is that we had the industrial revolution and it replaced hands and legs. And so there was a new way of working and living that came with that and a bunch of technologies that were produced out of that revolution. And now it's almost like we've got the, the knowledge revolution. There is technology that can almost think and process uh, on behalf of us. And so we're going to have to work out a way to live with that and, and work out how that affects us and the technologies that will come out of, of this piece of technology. So people are talking about the large language model or LLM with AI. Uh, what's that exactly and what are some of the ethical considerations around it? Yeah. So a large language model is a new type of technology or processing language. So previously we were able to look at one word at a time in a sentence for for natural language. So think autocomplete. It was more nascent and a lot more basic. Large language models are able to look at every single word in a sentence or a question that we might put to it and then draw on basically all of the, the data that it's been trained on. And these are very big models. We could say that the whole internet has been scraped and has trained these AI models. 
So when you're asking a question, it's like that smart librarian that looks at all of the internet and comes back to you. Yeah, I guess it's, it's more around how is this different to what's come before and where are LLMs likely to head next? Yeah. So what we've had before is a librarian that could probably only look at a short one book at a time um, and one sentence at a time referring back and forth to provide you an answer. Now with large language models, we're, we're looking at every single book in that library and every single word in that question and providing you answers with that context. Yeah, so like a librarian who's got just a massive memory and can remember every book and incorporate every book into the answer of the question that you've asked. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I guess why it's powerful is because we have initially there, four years ago, these models were trained on 110 million parameters, or you could say data points. Now, OpenAI, who's the the biggest player in the field, they've released a newer model. And this model has, I don't think they've even released how many data points they're referencing, but it's probably to the order of 1.7 trillion. So you're thinking all of that information getting referenced all at once. These are very powerful pieces of technology. Um, The ethical considerations... So to answer your question about the ethical considerations, initially when these models or this technology was released, we saw that they were really good at natural language, but they produced convincing answers that were completely false and wrong. And (laughs) and so there was a phenomena called hallucinating. Now, as doctors, I'm sure we've all come across hallucinating individuals in the emergency department. But yeah, it's definitely a concern. Now, you can imagine if we started to ask ChatGPT about symptoms or diagnosis or management, there is a very real risk that we will get the wrong answer. And I'm sure you can imagine the implications for patients and and their safety. We're not quite there yet in healthcare. And there is a real risk of hallucinating. In fact, if you go to uh, if you go to ChatGPT and use it, there, there's a disclaimer on the bottom saying ChatGPT can make mistakes. And so it's not quite there yet to be trusted. Mm. Interestingly, there is a, a startup called Hippocratic AI. We all love Hippocrates. I'm sure we've all declared the oath when we became, uh, when we finished med school. Um, this is looking to create the first large language model that is safe for healthcare. So they've got uh, a lot of benchmarks there. They're using uh, a big pool of nurses and doctors to train these answers and ensure that what's being put out is, is absolutely safe. I think that's extremely exciting. If we create or once a model that is created that is validated for use in healthcare, it'll be a real game changer, I think. Mm, Absolutely. Scary and exciting all at the same time. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, Roy, I've started using ChatGPT and I've also got an AI note transcription service, Lyrebird AI, which has been really interesting using that. What questions should we be asking around software that uses AI? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've actually looked at recently trying to predict 
where Australia is going with our regulation for AI. And I found that the European Act, as well as the White House Executive Order, quite helpful in framing how we should think about this. And so the five principles are like safety and security, one. The second is transparency. The third is privacy and data governance. The fourth is non-discrimination and fairness. And the fifth is human oversight. So I might just break all of those down. In terms of safety and security, how are these models validated? How is the use of these technologies tested? Do they have any research behind them? Is there a quality management system in place? Have they spoken to the TGA and ensured that it's safe for them to use? I guess because the technologies are so nascent, it's it, there will be startups that are using generative AI. And so really need to ask, I think, and startups by definition, young companies, they have to wear more risk in order to really take off as opposed to an incumbent that's been around a long time and will have all of these governance processes in place. Has this company taken the time to ensure that they're doing this safely, legally, and with proper governance? The second thing is transparency. So I'd really ask what models are being used behind the technology. You know, there are a number of open source models that technology providers don't need to pay for. Um, There are a number of models that are closed source, so they're paid. But how far can you see into these models so that you can get a clear explanation of how the artificial intelligence is making a decision? For example, if we think about, you know, and, and I imagine this will happen eventually, but if we think about an AI model that is facilitating diagnosis or differential diagnosis, we should be able to look inside and see how it's coming to that conclusion, almost just paying homage to the scientific method. At the moment, large language models don't really allow that. They almost have this black box effect. Because you're looking at billions of data points and connecting them, it's very difficult to understand how a large language model comes to its conclusion. I think there's two arguments around this. The first is if we can't understand how it's working, we can just test the outputs and ensure that they're correct. And I think that's fair. But ideally, you want to know that there's a little bit more rigor around determining an outcome, especially when it comes to high risk situations. I think this is probably a little less important for transcription or lower level tasks. So summarizing, transcribing, there's a number of tasks that are administrative that just burden us as practitioners. And so if we can use AI, really, I would say, while transparency is important, it might not be the be all and end all for that low level, low risk task. I might argue though, that when we're creating a referral letter, that there needs to be probably a little bit more rigor because that is a clinical handover. There's clinical information. And so the manipulation from one's notes to a referral letter can have very interesting consequences. Uh, I know in clinical practice, if you write two lines to a specialist, you're maybe less likely to get an appointment. You might be less likely to achieve better care. But if you take the time to write a a quality referral letter explaining your working, your thinking, then um, there's more chance that the patient gets better care. And so how, how are we making sure that these models are working in the right places? So that's transparency. 
The, the third part is privacy and data governance. At the moment in Australia for healthcare, our data needs to sit within Australian borders. And so there are a number of standards and certificates that technology providers need to abide by in order to provide solutions to healthcare providers. And so we really need to sit within these privacy and data considerations. Now, the, the one that I'm quite passionate about is non-discrimination and fairness. And I think this is where us as general practitioners really need to have a voice. At the moment, these models have been trained on billions of data sets, but they don't accurately represent the diverse and beautiful population that we live with in Australia. They also don't represent our First Nations people. So inherently there are biases. Now I could talk about gender bias in this as well. Generally, a lot of the content that's out there, it's we've got white middle-aged men that have created these technologies and a lot of the content on the internet might be biased towards paternalism or colonialism. So how are we ensuring that all of the data that goes into these models is fair? It carries principles of equity. It makes sure that underserved, underprivileged populations are uh, well represented. Yeah, I think these are the questions that are important to ask. I think at the moment, it, it is very early days, but we need to be talking about these things and bringing them to the forefront uh, as practitioners. Um, the last one is human oversight. And so is this technology provider proposing a solution that will get rid of you as the general practitioner? That's an absolute fallacy. I think the way AI should be used in healthcare at this point in time is only to augment care. We should not at this stage be allowing artificial intelligence to make decisions on behalf of a GP or a practice nurse, for example. It should augment the care that they're currently providing and there should always be human oversight as to whatever an artificial intelligence model is doing within a practice. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting. I love the way your view uh, informs your thinking and it's great to have someone with your experience both clinically and in technology to be able to bring those sort of two together. Roy, yeah, full cheers. respect. When we met at Wonka, I really, I, I had to take my hat off to you. You're married, two and a half kids. You've chucked in your adult job. You're pursuing the startup dream. Tell me about your entrepreneurial program and what one and a half years being exposed to fast-paced startups has taught you about GPs. Thank you. Yeah, it hasn't been easy. I think any person that's starting a business is taking a risk, whether it's a general practice or trying to run a startup. It's, yeah, it's hard. We've, we had around four months of personal savings that me and my wife chose to, to pour into this opportunity. And so we're really coming to the end of that. And now it's, it's game on. And fortunately, we've had some investment come through. It is a little bit of a risk, but also um, there's, there's an opportunity that we're pursuing. Um, the entrepreneur program, it was, yeah, it was a real blessing. In, in fact, I saw an email through CCIM or creative careers in medicine, and it just plugged the program. The clinical entrepreneur program is a fully subsidized program. And it took a bunch of health executives, provided them with funding to look for doctors, nurses, and allied healthcare workers to help 
clinicians take an idea and commercialize them. For me, it was the first taste of digital health, startups, technology, the tech scene, and I really fell in love and I was quite hungry to learn. Funny story, my application actually, we were, I think, having, yeah, about to have a baby at the time. And so I applied saying that I was so hungry to learn. It was like I was a baby, a newborn baby placed on its mum's tummy and I was going to have a feed no matter what. And I think this is, (laughs) this might have helped me along in the application process, but I think, yeah, there's definitely something about a beginner's mindset and lifelong learning that, that converts from being a GP to being a founder of a digital health company. There's a lot of parallels. In fact, I think we learned about how an idea is nothing without the execution and we need to be very iterative and almost hacky and adaptable, be able to pivot and change very quickly. I think general practitioners do this all the time where we navigated COVID, we navigate regulatory changes, we navigate MBS codes, we navigate billing items. It never stops. And so we're constantly having to change processes and by nature where I would say the profession is quite hacky, quite adaptable. And I've even written here as a note to myself that I think GPs are the greatest of all time in terms of anti-fragility. And I love this concept as well. We've often talked about resilience, but I heard the concept of anti-fragility and to break it down, if we're fragile, something bad happens and we crumble. If we're resilient, something bad happens and we are on the same page, we're able to come back and bounce back to the same level. But anti-fragility is something bad happens and we use it as a means, we use it as fuel to actually take us and go further than we could have without the event in the first place. I think GPs are a really good example of this. We're, we're able to take all the stuff that's thrown at us and come out stronger. Um, on reflection, I have a much deeper appreciation for general practitioners and what they do, as well as the profession as a whole. Um, general practitioners are also really generous and with their time, they're, they're open-handed and this is like vital and crucial in, in the startup world. You get nowhere really, unless people are generous to you. You start off and you know nothing. I, I knew very little 18 months ago. And it's the generosity of people who were willing to take a chance, willing to help, that helped me get to where I am today. And GPs do this all the time. We have supervisors, we're constantly teaching, we're teaching our patients, we're generous to our staff. Like I think there's so much in what it means to be a general practitioner that uh, converts over to running a technology business, funnily enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Look, Roy, thank you so much for your time today. You're helping educate our colleagues. You're sharing your story. And look, I wish you all the best with your startup. I'm sure you're going to go from strength to strength. And I I look forward to um, watching how your journey goes. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. Cool. Good on you, Roy. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact the Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. 
The content of this podcast represents the opinions of the Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.